Hey folks, and welcome to episode 202 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the Song of Songs, and here, Alistair Roberts and Peter Lightheart are going to discuss different topics around sexuality and liturgy, and a lot of the sexual imagery in the Song of Songs. We hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by listening in on this conversation, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lightheart, and I'm here again with Alistair Roberts, again sitting across at my kitchen table, still uh, visiting here in Birmingham, involved in some planning meetings uh, for Theopolis, and uh, has also uh, has some speaking engagements before him. Maybe you could, Alistair, before we get into the content of today's episode, just describe what's coming up in the next few weeks for you. In the next few weeks, we've got another week or so of planning here. I'm going to be going up to Moscow, Idaho, to speak at the Trinity Church Epiphany Lectures. So I'll be continuing some discussion of the theology of the sexes for them. I'll be speaking at South Bend, um, Indiana, my first visit to that city. And then I'll be very briefly visiting Chicago before heading back. And what are you doing in South Bend? Um, I am not entirely sure what I'll be speaking on there, beyond the fact one of the talks will be on a theology of the sexes and another on Jordan Peterson. Yeah, is this going to be a student group or what's the setting for it? Associated with a, an Anglican church plant there. Okay, so if uh, any of you listeners are in those areas, either Moscow or uh, South Bend or Chicago, um, look for Alistair's arrival. Uh, Brian Motes, I should say, is also here, keeping things on track so we can get through this next episode of the podcast. Uh, we're in the fifth of our series of episodes of podcast discussions of the Song of Songs, and we've been talking about some general introductory things about the Song of Songs, uh, dating and authorship, that sort of thing. We talked about some approaches to reading the Song of Songs, uh, the traditional allegorical approach, and uh, some of the complexities of that, some of the reasons why we uh, think that an allegorical reading of the song, or typological reading, if you will, is uh, rooted in the text and not simply an imposition on the text. And today we want to talk about a couple of uh, large uh, sets of imagery, really, in uh, the Song of Songs, uh, overlapping sets of imagery. This uh, somewhat fits with the uh, topic that we had in the last, uh, last couple of episodes, talking about allegory. Uh, particularly uh, two episodes ago, talking about an allegorical reading and the various levels of allegory. Uh, you have Yahweh and his people. You have Christ and the church, ultimately. You also have the king and the land or the king and the people. That's another level of allegory. But the imagery of the song is drawn from a couple of different settings or largely drawn from those couple of settings. And that gives yet another layer to the typology of the allegory that's going on in the song. And those are, in particular, the garden setting and the temple setting. And as I said, these are overlapping settings. Uh, the, uh, the Garden of Eden was the original meeting place where Adam and Eve were to meet with God and commune with Him. It's the original place where they had a kind of sacramental food in the tree of the fruit of the tree of life and the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And um, that setting became, becomes the template for later sanctuaries throughout the Old Testament. So Adam and Eve are excluded from the garden, but when Israel comes to Sinai, they're instructed to build a tent, tabernacle, that 
has features of the garden built into it and it's kind of a, a small scale recovery of the garden. Uh, Aaron can't be Adam and go straight into the inner recesses of the tabernacle. He can't go all the way into the garden, but he can go partway in and he can commune with God and Israel can come near. Uh, and the various features of that of the tabernacle that pick up features of the garden. Uh, there, there's food, there's mountain imagery, there's cherubim that are woven into the curtains of the tabernacle. There are cherubim that are above the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, so the tabernacle represents a recovery of the garden. And then as you move on in biblical history, of course, you get the temple, which is similar to the tabernacle, but um, elevated and, uh, and glorified and enlarged embiggened and uh, much of the same kind of imagery from the tabernacle and the, going back to the garden it gets picked up and put into the temple and so that's what we want to want to look at that's uh, we'll kind of distinguish these two sets of imagery but those settings really are overlapping and interpenetrating throughout scripture and you can't really disentangle them entirely the connection between the woman and the garden that we find i think in song of songs it's not the first time that we have such an association, I believe. If we look back at Genesis chapter 2, there is already some sort of association between the two at that point. I would suggest that we see it partly in the realm where the man and the woman are created. The man is created outside of the garden and then brought into the garden, placed within that realm. Whereas the woman is created we are to presume within the garden as part of the garden that the man relates to her within that realm of the garden especially and so the connection of the imagery of the garden with the imagery of the woman is a natural association on that front also when we look at the curses the judgments we see a connection between the man's working of the land to bring forth fruit and pain and then the woman's body from which she brings forth fruit in pain. And that connection, I think, helps us to understand more clearly why there might be a connection between the woman and the garden. So in Genesis 2, you have, once Eve is created, Adam's priestly ministry in the garden takes on a new dimension. He was commissioned to guard the garden and to serve it. And now Eve is inside the garden, and so he becomes a priest, not just to the to the space of the garden, but he becomes a priest that guards and serves the bride. And that, that kind of uh, picture of priestly ministry, guarding and serving, guarding a space, serving within a space, but also guarding and serving a bride is, uh, that's part of the nature of priesthood throughout the Old Testament. Just to, just to highlight the passages you're referring to in the Song of Songs, a couple of several, but uh, the explicit ones, uh, Song of Songs 4, 12, and 13, a garden locked is my sister, my bride a rock garden locked, a spring sealed up. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, henna, and nard blossoms, nard plants. And then 15 and 16, you are a garden spring, a well of fresh water and streams flowing from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come wind of the south. Make my garden breathe out fragrance. Let its spices be wafted abroad. May my beloved come into his garden and eat its choice fruits. So twice you have an explicit comparison of the bride to the garden. And then you have uh, 15 and 16 has this interesting, again, Edenic uh, image of um, life and beauty, uh, the, the uh, a fragrance of the garden flowing out, uh, water flowing out from the garden. The garden is a, uh, the woman is a garden spring, uh, and the water flows out uh, like the streams from Lebanon. Um, the wind the wind blows over the garden and uh, takes the fragrance of the garden out. So 
Uh, there's a there's a, a movement uh, from from the garden uh, and extension outward, and then you have uh, five one, which is uh, four sixteen and five one are kind of the center of the whole poem. But five one, you have uh, another use of garden imagery, which may again be the bride herself as the garden. I've come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I've gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I've eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I've drunk my wine and my milk. Eat friends, drink and imbibe deeply, O lovers. Now there the garden may be the bride herself, or the garden is the setting where the bride and the groom, the bride and the man uh, unite. So th those are some of the passages that bring out this theme more or less explicitly. And more broadly in scripture, we have the connection between the bride and the city that the city is portrayed as a faithful or unfaithful bride and that life of the city, that home, um, the woman is at the heart of the life of the community, of the city, of the home and even within the very concrete reality of the woman's body, that is the site of marital union mm -hmm. um, and it's also the site that is the first home of it, all their children. Right. I want to highlight some other uh, aspects to that too. The uh, the uh, the woman is compared to a garden, and then there are other extended comparisons that are working within that imagery. And I should have pointed out in verse thirteen, four thirteen, your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates, and the the word there's pardes, perhaps a Persian loan word, or perhaps the Persians got it from the Hebrews. Who knows? Uh, but it's a it's a it's a enclosed space, an enclosed garden, a paradise of pomegranates. Again, uh, that's a term that gets picked up, obviously, in all kinds of ancient and modern languages to describe uh, the original state of the creation. But th th what's interesting about the Song of Songs is you not only have the original garden setting and the the, the kinds of things you find in the original Garden of Eden: fruits, trees. The lover is an apple tree; his fruit is sweet. Uh, the bride is a, uh, is, a, uh, is a garden of pomegranate, so again, fruit. But you also have other features of just um, decorative gardens that are associated with the bride throughout the, with, throughout the poem. She's not just uh, pictured as uh, delightful uh, in the way, that a, uh, uh, the way that a food is delightful, but she's depicted as being flower-like. Uh, there's a, a great deal of flower imagery that runs through the whole poem different particular flowers that are that are comparisons for the bride she's she calls herself a rose of sharon in 2-1 she's uh, like a lily among the thorns according to the bridegroom in 2-2 and that different different re uh, references to different sorts of flowers are running through the whole poem and i think that there's a, a we talked about um, in an earlier episode about the overlapping multi-century kind of imagery that you have with uh, different uh, similes and metaphors in the poem. Your love is better than wine. A lot of overlapping, uh, extended implications to that. Perhaps most importantly, uh, love is an intoxicant in the way wine is. But I think the flowers function in the same way. The bride is like a flower that's um, a visual image of beauty. Um, it's also an image of delicacy. It's, it's not um, overwhelming or awesome beauty but delicate beauty. Uh, flowers obviously are aromatic and fragrant, and the aroma is a huge, a huge theme in the Song of Songs. Uh, we'll talk about that in the, next, in the next episode. And then the particular associations with uh, different flowers that are mentioned here. Um, Othmar Kiel, uh, who's uh, written some 
interesting books on ancient imagery. Uh, talks about the uh, the uh, comparison in two one. I am the rose of Sharon, or the crocus of Sharon, and he says that the flower that's in view here is not not uh, it has co- kind of cosmic connotations in the ancient world, and he connects it with ancient uh, and particularly Egyptian creation myths, where the original creation is a is a sea, and the original form of a world emerging from the sea is a lotus. So the lotus in the midst of the sea, that's the Egyptian picture of the original form of the world. Um, and that becomes an, a picture, the, the lotus thus becomes a, an image of, not just of beauty and fragrance, but it becomes an image of rebirth and recreation. How much that's actually functioning in the Song of Songs is, is debatable, but it, uh, worth keeping in mind that these images might have particular, the, the particular flowers might have particular connotations in ancient, in ancient lore. Beyond those garden connotations, we also seem to have a number of temple connotations which are connected with that. If we look at the Temple of Solomon, there is a, an abundance of Edenic imagery within that context. Not just imagery, but also language that is suggestive of the original creation, and um, not least of the woman, the sides of the temple, and the different language for the parts of the temple are suggestive of a body being formed, um, shoulders, this sort of term being, those sorts of terms being used. And then the imagery of pomegranates, of cherubim, of trees and fruits, and this abundance of the garden. Even when we think, for instance, of bronze, um, the bronze pillars outside may, may be connected to the legs of a person, but they're also connected with foliage. They will turn green with time. They're, they have pomegranates and other things at the top. And it suggests that there is a connection between the garden and the temple. And we see that, I think, more generally elsewhere in Scripture, particularly when we get to the image of the garden city in Revelation, that these things come together, the water flowing out of the temple, the water flowing out of the garden, the water flowing out of the city. And these connections also come up in the descriptions of the um, the bridegroom at various points. So I think it's in verses 14 following of chapter 5 his hands are rods of gold set with beryl his abdomen is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires his legs are pillars of alabaster set on pedestals of pure gold his appearance is like lebanon choice as the cedars that is language that is architectural language it reminds you of a temple of a palace of something of those kinds and even at the beginning you have allusions to things that would connect the temple draw me after you and let us run together the king has brought me into his chambers i am black but lovely O daughters of jerusalem like the tents of kedar like the curtains of solomon just to uh, clear uh, or add to what you were saying about the architectural features uh, one of the one of the repeated words that's used throughout the account in kings of the building of the temple is the word rib Uh, and that's it's describing I don't know what, <laughs> some architectural feature in the temple, but it's used, uh, I think it's used more often in First uh, Kings 6 than it is anywhere else in the Old Testament. It's, it's common to notice that the temple is a kind of humaniform architecture, that it's uh, representing a, a human being as an architectural representation of a human being. But I think more particularly, as you say, it's in both sanctuaries are architectural representations of the bride. 
the bride becomes the bridal temple becomes the dwelling place of the the Lord and husband of Israel who enters the bride the bridal temple in glory and so you have that sexual imagery that's part of the uh, part of the part of the picture of the temple you also have as you mentioned the uh, materials of the temple that are used brought me into the chambers but also the specific woods that are used in the temple are mentioned in 117 the beams of our houses are cedars or rafters cypresses cedar and cypress are two of the woods that are used to build the temple the famous 2-4 he brought me to his banqueting table and his banner over me his love i'm not going to get the tune but you you remember the tune from your sunday school days what they didn't tell you is that it actually means house of wine he brought me to his house of wine and his banner over me his love um, which is, you know, that's a, that's a house of, wine has already been associated with love right at the beginning of the poem. It's a house of lovemaking. It's their house of communion. It's their getaway. But house of wine is also a temple description. Uh, I don't know if it's ever used as a temple description, but it's a fitting description for what happens in the temple. It's, or around the temple. It's the place where Israel goes in order to rejoice with uh, food and drink before the Lord. I wanted to follow up something you said too, the, the uh, architectural or statuesque imagery that you have in chapter 5. Uh, there, is a, there does seem to be a, a different zone of imagery that's being used for the bridegroom and the bride. The bride is flower, flowers. Uh, the bride is plants. The bride is certain architectural features, uh, but those are, it seems like the, the, the natural organic imagery is more pronounced with the bride and the, when you get to the bridegroom you still have a it's not completely artifice but it is a lot of it is the passage you read rods of gold set it was set with barrels abdomen is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires that's a product of human skill art human craft i uh, wondered if you reflected on the the ways that, that might point to a uh, to, to a biblical way of thinking about sexual difference um i think there's definitely mentioned earlier the connection between the woman and the garden and the realm that's the life of the communion of the household it centers in the body of the bride but that emphasis upon the architectural imagery my first connection would be in thinking about the church when we think about the church we have the architectural imagery of the temple fused with the language of the body and that is very much something that finds its unity in Christ. But that fusion of building up the body and this coming together of a temple, it's interesting to see, particularly in places like Ephesians, the way that Paul will use both sets of imagery and fuse them together. And that, I think, is something what we're seeing here. We don't see a complete disjunction of these forms of imagery, but they're connected in subtle ways and in ways that suggests that I think the form is particularly associated with the man if anything whereas the filling the life the um, the fragrance the water these sorts of things are things that are contained within the garden that go out and um, those realities are primarily associated with the woman mm -hmm. so um, not men are from Mars women are from Venus yeah. but Men are houses, women are, women are gardens, or men are walls, women are gardens. Make your own contemporary political application as you will. Anyway. But very much these Im this imagery isn't something that opposes the two, but seen in the joining together of them, that both sets of imagery are at play 
right. and both participate in aspects of um, the imagery that is particularly attached to the other. Yeah, yeah, and um, uh, just to confirm that, we've been looking at uh, the end of chapter five, but if you look at 5.13, his cheek are like, cheeks are like a bed of balsam, banks of sweet-scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. So there's, there's still this garden imagery. You do have this overlap. And as I said, the, the bride is not only compared to uh, natural phenomena, uh, flowers and garden features, but also to architect yeah, architectural features. And her nose is like a Tower of Lebanon, 7-4. There's something, something for you guys, sweet nothings that you can add to your list. <laughs> I think that just to bring this to, a, I guess, a more practical or yeah, more practical level, I think that the, the, the interplay of these two different sets of imagery is interesting just as a, a literary exercise, as an exercise in biblical theology. But I think the, the, um, the liturgical implications, the, I guess it goes both directions as we were discussing in an earlier episode. The liturgical informs the erotic and the erotic informs the liturgical. So the garden imagery that is a, a love garden, uh, that's, that is a description of the... Uh, the work of the temple, of the intercourse that takes place between Israel and her husband in the temple. Uh, and the temple liturgical side of things informs our understanding of what human sexuality and human sexual love is about. So I cited um, the prayer book marriage service uh, in an earlier episode, With My Body I Thee Worship. There's, a, there's an insight into the uh, mutually interpreting realities of sexuality and liturgy. Those in the song of those two things are being, light from each is being shed on the other, as it were. And thinking about this in the context of New Testament theology, the fact that we are the body of Christ, that Christ and his church, the man and the woman as one flesh, it helps us to see not these two characters as opposed to, other, to each other, but the unity of the two as that which is being explored primarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, the other, the other um, aspect to it that I, I'm put in mind of is uh, the connection that um, Jim Jordan has pointed to between food, eating, and sexuality. There's a kind of mutual consumption. I was going to talk about kissing in the next episode, but we'll go ahead and talk about osculation now. I mean, may he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth is the opening phrase of, this, of the poem. A kiss is a kind of mutual consumption. Uh, there's a that's a, a very odd way to, to uh, express affection for someone <laughs> uh, if you step, uh, step back and think about, uh, think about it. But there's a, there is a kind of uh, mutual consumption that gets brought out in different ways in the course of the song, particularly in 5-1 right at the center, where the lovers seem to be treating the other as a source of delight. So they're, they're eating together and making love are, are things that kind of, mutu- again, mutually interpret one another in Scripture, there's a kind of one flesh union that takes place as we share a meal together. Again, this has Eucharistic implications, uh, ecclesial implications, as you were saying. Uh, we're knit together as one body as we partake of one loaf. We're knit together as the bride of the husband and with the husband by sharing in that meal. And that being one flesh is also connected with a mutual belonging that my, my beloved has gone down to his garden. The, relationship between the bride and the bridegroom is seen in the bride's recognition that she belongs to the bridegroom. The bridegroom elicits from her the true glory that is proper to her. 
and her garden characters, as it were, released by the, the work of the bridegroom. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.